Well, Westmount, let's continue that song of praise, that worship in the Word with the Word of God. Why don't you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans with me, book of Romans. Jeremy has fittingly introduced us really to the great theme of this book and what we'll be looking at today, certainly an introduction form in this first chapter, but we'll be returning to this concept of righteousness again and again in Romans. So that's where we are, Romans 1. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. And don't have a Bible, look in front of you, you'll see that in the racks. You can take one, follow along with us, turn to the book of Romans. Romans. See here, as we turn to chapter 1, and this morning we are returning to the summit of these opening verses, the theme of this letter. Found within them is, of course, the great content of the gospel of God. And that content was introduced with a statement of bold confession. Look at verse 16. Do you remember that? The statement of bold confession, for I am not ashamed of of the gospel. I am not ashamed. In other words, not only is there no cause for shame here, felt shame here, but more to the word, as it is rendered, I confess the gospel. That's what is being said by Paul. Paul is saying, it is what my lips and my life declare. And as we consider our lips and our life, we recognize the temptation to be ashamed. Yes, the temptation to be ashamed is a reality for Christ's imperfected followers. And most especially for such in-progress followers that live in a curse-stained world. We are, of course, beloved, weak, frail, trembling creatures living in a culture that openly declares, as we said last week, evil, good, and good, evil. That's the confession, it seems, without shame around us today. As we noted, our culture today boasts evil. Far from not being ashamed, they're indeed boasting it. Those around us, too, mock Christianity and call it foolish. Indeed, just as God has said, we were reminded of 1 Corinthians 1.18 last week that said the word of the cross is what? Folly to those who are perishing. Yes, it's just that. But Westmount Saints, you remember the word of the cross may be folly to those perishing, but to us it is what? What is it? To us, as Paul would go on to say, and as a reference to all saints that would confess this at all time, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This brings us to our first point and a reminder of our first point from last week. The power of God. It is the power of God. That first gospel pillar that we looked at found in verse 16. The power of God, the only power, we noted this, that can change man's fallen nature. What was transmitted to us, as we mentioned already, through Adam, Romans 5 details this, by nature, that natural state Right? It is the only power that can change that fallen natural state and transform him and make him new. Only the omnipotence, the all power of God, can do that. And that is what we confess. And that is why we are not ashamed. We are new creatures transformed. 
The power of God is the only real and true power to bring about that change. We labored at length last week to see this in Scripture. It's the only true power to bring effectual change. The power of God is what our faith rests on. It is the power in which we live in our weakness and derive our strength. It is the power for every work of faith. The power of God, church, is the only power, speaking of hope, that can raise the dead. The power of God is sovereign power. It contests with no other power. It is power that stands alone. Again, as we mentioned last week, the hope for mankind is found nowhere else. There is no power that can give this kind of hope. The power of God, as we'll see in Romans, is the only power to save. Naturally, then, that's what the power of God leads to. Look at verse 16. The, power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, a reminder of our second gospel pillar, for salvation. It bears repeating the greatest demonstration of the power of God is salvation. Salvation means to be saved. We addressed the ignorance and misunderstanding here last week. Salvation in Romans in the New Testament, we see this over and over again, refers to salvation not of one's body but of one's soul. By salvation, God means salvation from the just penalty coming after death. As Jerry prayed this morning, the destination for all of us that we can't escape from in and of ourselves. And it's just the wrath of God. And salvation from our just eternal destination. It would be right for us to spend an eternal residence in hell. The place of eternal anguish. The place we all deserve to be because we've earned that ticket. We've punched that ticket. The place of eternal wrath is where we all, again, and we must note this, deserve to be by nature and by choice. We will see this clearly in Romans. Mankind's brokenness, our depravity, the revealing of which begins when we pick it up next time in verse 18. It will be made very, very clear what our condition is. Hence, we need salvation. We are bound for eternal anguish and incapable of self-rescue. Saints, this is why we are not ashamed of the gospel of God, because it proclaims eternal hope. The power of God for salvation, by God's power, the lost soul can be saved. The lost fallen soul, the soul headed to eternal agony and separation from God, can be saved. We confess that. The lost fallen soul that turns from his mocking, his indifference, his sin, and turns toward God and the embrace of his son, the one that believes in him. And that is what verse 16 goes on to say. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Look at it. To everyone who believes. There's your location. To everyone who believes. That means it's a, a gospel presented to all mankind. In time, look at it, the Jew first, but then also the Greek as we studied the non-Jew. That is to all nations. This is an offer. This is the opportunity presented to all nations. The power of God for salvation. That good news, the free gift of God. Once first proclaimed to Israel, now proclaimed to all nations, offered to all Yes, God calls and he elects from every nation. 
Westmount, we confess that. Thus, we are not ashamed of man's only hope for salvation. The power of God, salvation, the first two of four gospel pillars in these verses. That's where we left off last week, and now we consider the other two. Look at them with me. The righteousness of God and faith. Let's look at them again in these two verses. Let's read them again. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father God, we ask, we continue to to plead in this study that you would take these words, Lord, and, and open our eyes, our minds to see them, to understand them. Father, maybe we need new eyes today, Lord, to see. Maybe we need to be renewed in these truths, Father, that these words communicate. But Father, whatever our state, do that, Lord. Plant them deep and let us respond in faith, the faith that you give. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen. Let's turn our attention now to verse 17. And the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. It says, for in the gospel of God, in the good news, look at it, for in it, that's the it, the gospel of God, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. When we opened this study a few weeks ago, we defined the righteousness of God a specific way, and we said it this way, God acting in accordance with his own nature. God acting in accordance with his own nature. That's in its simplest form, and I pray its most helpful form. That is the righteousness of God. God acting in accordance with his own nature. And we need to understand that and settle it into our hearts in this study. And again, this is just the beginning as we study this concept. The righteousness of God is referenced nine times by the Apostle Paul in his letters. Eight of those times are in Romans, very directly. I think you understand what is going on in Romans with that fact alone. All of that to say, this is indeed the summit and the point in Romans. God acting in accord with who he is. The righteousness of God then is the sum of God's perfection. It is who he is. The righteousness of God is the perfect action of our God. It is what he does. Who he is, what he does. This is the message of Romans that in the gospel, God is doing in accord with his being. God is doing in accord with his being. Now, this is what the gospel of God reveals. Let's look at the next word in there, this revealing. In fact, that word, look at verse 17, is a very important word that Paul uses. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. By revealed or revelation, we're not referring to something new or novel. If you've been around Westbound for a while and been in the various classes, this shouldn't be new to you, that concept that revealing is not something new. No, to be revealed in Scripture is always to make something once previously hidden, previously concealed, making it known now in this present time. That's what revealing is. And in the gospel, what is revealed is what has always been known by the eternal decree and omniscience of God. And it's this. 
God's eternal, divine intention to act in accordance with his nature. That's what's being revealed in the gospel of God. Of course, it has lots of tributaries and such, which we're going to get to gloriously. But again, simply God's eternal, divine intention to act in accord with his own nature. In the gospel of God, such righteousness of God is revealed now to us. This is the glory This is the confession. Now again, as I mentioned, that's it simply. Let's dig in a little deeper here. A couple of other realities of the righteousness of God are vital as we begin this journey in Romans, as they will be communicated and begin to be as we see. And they need to be stated clearly at the outset of this letter, and especially here as we think clearly in this book. First, The righteousness of God, and this is what we said from the opening week, so this is a bit of a restatement, is categorically opposite to the righteousness of man. And we do need to grasp this. The righteousness of God is antithetical, it is against, it is opposed to the righteousness of man. And we need to understand this today. As we said off the top, there is a righteousness being presented to you you that knows nothing of the righteousness of God. And in Romans, beloved, this is emphatically presented. This, Westmount, we will not miss in this study. God's righteousness in Romans is, in fact, contrasted to man's righteousness. Later in this letter, let's think about chapter 3. Paul will reference the fact, this is what he'll say in Romans 3 verse 5, that our unrighteousness, that's the righteousness of man, our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. What gives it the the presentation in Romans? What is the platform for the righteousness of God? Well, it's set against the unrighteousness of man. That's what Paul is saying. That contrast is unveiled then in the two preceding verses, which are the two we're about to descend into, Romans 1 and 2. We will see this. And beloved, it will be hard, there's no question, when you see the righteousness of man presented and all its fallenness and depravity. That's where Paul goes, so we follow the text from verse 18 on. We'll see that. But that contrast, the polar difference, it's not just a study When you come to church, it's not just good to know that, oh yes, God's righteousness is in contrast to ours. Listen, that communication, that truth is essential for every human being to understand before they die. Before they reach their expiry date in this life. Why? Because the majority of people are on the broad way to death. And I don't mean those that even, I just heard this morning, someone was communicating to me, I think from a relative, that they're just fine with not being of God anymore. They're just fine with that. I guess they're not a Christian, they say. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the people deceived. They would say they'll be fine. People believing that their own righteousness will save them after the grave. Maybe confessing some part of the righteousness of God. Well, that's why we go to church, and that's why I open the Bible, and that's why in my lineage. But even 0.01% of your own righteousness pollutes the whole thing. What are we saying? It is Christ, 99%? It's Christ alone. 
You have nothing to offer. And we need to see that before we die. And that is the problem. Because it doesn't matter how many doses of our own righteousness, the the mocker might say, well, I'm just going to put a whole heap of my deeds on there. It doesn't matter. Every righteous deed, the Bible says, is impotent. It emanates from us. The Bible speaks of the untold numbers of men and women that will be deceived by this. You have an entire passage outlining this tragedy on that day. Get away from me, Lord will say. I never knew you. A righteousness does not contain the power to save. Remember, it is opposite. No, our righteousness does not save. Our righteousness only condemns. Yet, how we rely on it, don't we? I think if we're being honest this morning, like a pacifier, right? Like a comfort for us. We love our deeds, don't we? Our deeds make us comfortable around other people. At least I'm not like them. And God, you must see what I did yesterday. Oh God, won't you see what I do? What I do. What I do. How we rely on our own righteousness. And so often don't even say it, but feel it. Humanity is always tempted to rely on their own righteousness instead of submitting to God's righteousness, the only instrument for salvation. The righteousness of God is the only righteousness and power to save. That's one reality. Another reality of the righteousness of God, so important off the top, that warrants opening comment, introductory comment, is this. And this is where we get very pointed with where we're going, and again, as Jeremy helpfully uh, brought us to this morning, the righteousness of God is indeed who God is and what God does, but also, this is what we're going to see, in the gospel of God, what is revealed is the righteousness of God bestowed. It is who God is and what he does, but we're going to see it bestowed, imputed, as Jeremy showed us this morning. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of God is gloriously this. Listen, that God acted in accordance with his nature, but in the gospel to make sinners right with himself. It just gets more glorious, doesn't it? And how does he do that? Well, let's be precise and clear here. In a milieu of false claims, let's be clear. Does he infuse the sinner with a righteousness? So that he can slowly change. It just helps him. There's this synergistic kind of a sense. He can progressively learn and earn. Learn and earn. Right standing before God. So that on that day he can look back. God helped for sure. But he stands on some degree of his own merit. So it's God thank you. But now it's up to us. No that sounds good. And of course the Roman Catholics teach that. But that is not what is taught here. In scripture. We will see that in Romans. That's not what's taught here. No, the righteousness of God is not a very helpful infusion. It's not a divine life boost. That's not what the righteousness of God is. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel as a status conferred. It is a divine achievement. It is the conferring of a right status. It's the legal declaration of one standing. This is the glory and the amazement, quite frankly. It is indeed amazing love. This is righteousness counted. Let's use the language we're going to see in Romans. Righteousness counted, accounted, 
to the sinner. This is the righteousness of God that declares the unjust are now just in God's sight. How? Through Christ. Let's ever lose that divine instrument. Through Christ. As we will see, the righteous one who again lived perfect righteousness. It's key. Didn't just lay down his life as an example even, or a token transaction. He laid down perfect righteousness, thereby imputing it to our account. This is legal. It's like the verdict. Think of a courtroom in your mind. It's like the verdict that is declared upon the accused as the accused stands before you. The declaration, the declaration doesn't make them righteous. No, they're now just counted as such. And that's the point. They're declared it. They're declared it. Thus, they have a new standing and a new position. Now, of course, it is true that declaration in God's economy has all kinds of implications for the life of the believer, but that's not what we're talking about in justification. That would be a whole other doctrine of sanctification and how we walk in the Spirit and all of those things. But in justification, when God declares the sinners right because of Christ, this is divine achievement, status conferred, new standing, new position. And this is what the gospel of God declares. Listen to chapter 3. Again, as we are going to do often peek in later in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, that's who, that's what they were pointing to. One that would fulfill this righteously because the law demands it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God thus is not our own. It is, in chapter 5 or 17, again we looked at that this morning already, it is called what? A gift. It is a gift. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Not merited. Nothing merited here. It's the free gift. They reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And to close this point and to move us along to our last one, consider one other text. Specifically the language. So we see that this is consistent in all of the New Testament, not just in Romans. Let's think of this text in Philippians, the language that Paul uses here in his confession as he declares that he's not ashamed to the Philippians. Listen to his language in Philippians 3, note it, 8 and 9. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. In other words, he has nothing to offer and present. In order, everything is lost, everything is counted as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him. Location, not having a righteousness of my own. See that? He abandons the righteousness of himself, of his own. Not being found with my own righteousness that comes from the law. And whatever law keeping, and Paul's law keeping was famous, wasn't it? In fact, one could say if there was someone that did his very best, and if you were taking score, you'd want the Apostle Paul on your team. But he says, I count it as rubbish. 
Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, and here it is, that depends on faith. See that? It depends on faith. Paul says he doesn't possess a righteousness of own. It is not his own. It's not his own morality. It's not his own law keeping. That's the reason that he's now saved and found in Christ. What's astonishing when you read Paul's testimony is what he does with his law keeping. He puts it in the trash can. Because it means nothing. And I don't want to be found on that day holding up my own righteousness. In fact, what I want to be known as and what I confess to you is a righteousness that's not my own, that's alien to me, that's foreign to me, but that was given to me, that was conferred on me by Jesus Christ. And that righteousness depends on faith. The righteousness of God is a divine declaration. That status, that right standing, that's what Paul claims. But how is that reconciliation accounted? That may be your question now. More, how is it received? Maybe today you're seeing this for the first time between the Lord's table and now, and you say, I I see that. How does one receive that? Because I have been clinging to my own righteousness. The efficacy of God's righteousness in the salvation of the believer, look at it, beloved, depends on faith. And that's where Paul goes in verse 17. This is faith is gospel access. And this is the final gospel pillar here. We've looked at the power of God, salvation, the righteousness of God, and now faith. Look one more time at verse 17. Or in it, the gospel of God, the righteousness of God is revealed. Look, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And look at the terms he uses here, from faith for faith. If you think to yourself, well, that sounds sweeping. You're right, it is. This is the point. Or we could say it another way, the righteousness of God is revealed entirely by faith. Now we're really getting at the heart. And this is in line with all that we've seen already in Romans and even in the Old Testament. Reception of the good news of God has always been by faith. This wasn't different for Israel. They never received righteousness by law in the Old Testament. Never. Talk about Abraham and others. Reception of the good news of God, the good news of Yahweh, has always been by faith. From Old Testament faith to New Testament faith, from the faith of the Jew to the faith of the Greek, there's no other reception of what God freely gives. It's only by faith. It's never changed. That's always been the reception of good news. Old Testament saints, we need to say this again, did not receive their promises of God. Their inheritance from God by law. And then New Testament saints by grace. No. In one sense, grace is involved, right? But there's not two ways of reception. Israel did not experience salvation by works. And then it was only the church. Only then it was by faith. No. Listen to Hebrews 11.7. Speaking of going all the way back to the beginning. One of the very first men of faith, Noah... Hebrews 11.7, chronicling lives of the faithful, says this, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Do you see that? The righteousness comes by faith. There's no other way to come by it. It has always been from faith, for faith, and by faith. Always in every administration. 
A right relationship with God always is obtained by faith, not by law work or deeds. To confirm this unchanging truth, Paul then, look what he does here, references the Old Testament to close this verse. In fact, you should know, by way again of introduction to Romans, you should know that over half of Paul's Old Testament citations are found in this book. Over half of Paul's quoting of the Old Testament is found in Romans. And that's important for this point, especially this morning, because it again affirms, as Paul will show us, there's nothing new here. Paul deliberately goes back to the Old Testament to demonstrate, like again, he does here, over and over again, that there not only is nothing new, but there's something we need to be reminded of and understand. Look at verse 17. He says at the end, he says, as it is written... There's the reference. The righteous shall live by faith. Look at it. As it is written. That's your cue, your textual cue, that you are being taken back. You see this particularly in the New Testament. You're being taken back to the Old. And here the Old Testament book being referenced is Habakkuk. Paul goes to this book. And it's a proof. He goes there as a proof that life from God has always been by faith. Now we gave you a boost this morning with the screen. This time you will need to turn there to Habakkuk. Look between Nahum and Zephaniah. Get you doing some work as we go to this book and and be good Bereans, right? As we understand, it's not just a New Testament quoting of the old. Let's understand what was going on in the old and why Paul quoted it. Again, between Nahum and Zephaniah, you'll find Habakkuk. Little three-chapter minor prophet book. Habakkuk, of course, one of the prophets of Israel. If you've been here Wednesdays, you're already familiar with him. Consistent message from the prophets. right? God speaking to his people about covenant violation and the implications of covenant violation, but then also bringing the message of hope. Habakkuk. No different, but his flavor, we will see as we just do a brief survey of this book. Look at the opening verses. Habakkuk opens his letter, and this is a cry out to the Lord at the situation in Judah. In Judah. Look at the opening verses. The oracle that Habakkuk prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look at that. How bad is the situation in Israel? Look at what the prophet is saying here. Look at the end of verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. Why are you sitting idly, Lord? Are you not seeing this? Look at verse 4. The law is paralyzed. In fact, no justice goes forth. And it's your justice from his sight. For the wicked surround the righteous. Note that. The wicked surround the righteous. That's what Habakkuk sees. So justice goes forth perverted. That's the situation in Judah. It's an awful scene to look at. Habakkuk says, what are you doing, Lord? That's his complaint. Do you see this? God responds. Verse 5. Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You, one imagines the prophet sitting up straight and say, okay, here we go. 
For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. An instant reminder of how unjust the Chaldeans are. They're dreaded and fearsome. Yes, those Chaldeans. I'm raising them up. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their righteousness. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press loudly on, proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. In other words, they're powerful on earth. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. In other words, they're ruthless in their efforts. At kings, they scoff. In other words, they care little for earthly power. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. At this point, you don't even need to read on to imagine what might be happening in the Israelite as he reads this. This is your solution, God. This is your solution to raise up a people so fierce and cruel and wicked. You are raising up Chaldeans to judge. Look at them in verse 6. At this point, the Chaldeans would have been a a small band that would have been growing, but not the power that they would be. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. You can even imagine more of the bewilderment to Habakkuk. Those people, that little band of bandits, you're raising them up to judge us? Habakkuk, like anyone looking at the situation with their plain eyes, would be aghast. And so the prophet protests in verse 12. Look at verse 12. We continue. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He knows his God, in other words. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. In other words, I know what you have said about enemies to you, Yahweh. I know what you've said. You, who are of pure eyes than to see evil... In other words, your eyes are pure. Help me with what I'm not seeing and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? The man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? In other words, how long is this going to go on? Is this just another uh, piece of a wicked program, Lord? What are you saying? Chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, okay, well, I'm here. I have heard it, but I don't know what else to say, Habakkuk says. Habakkuk's complaint, if you go back to verse 13, it's summed up fittingly in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil. In other words, God, you can see this. You have greater eyes than we do. You cannot look at wrong. And why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? You just see Habakkuk wrestling with his complaint to God here. What is going on? When the wicked swallow up, verse 13, the man more righteous than he. Help me, God, understand this. Yahweh, how can you of pure eyes just sit idly by? How can you remain silent? You will use the wicked to judge your people? Is that what you're saying, Yahweh? 
And so he is. And so it is, beloved, in our vision. Is that not right? Habakkuk, like Job, is left no other recourse than to protest in the sight of such circumstances that make no sense again in their own eyes. When that's where you rest on what you can see, then like Habakkuk, you will complain. Lord, how can you use a wicked nation, don't you see? To judge your nation, don't you see us? They're worse than us, don't you see that? In response, God says this, and this is the context then that Paul links to in Romans 1. We pick it up in verse 2, chapter 2. And the Lord answered me. Here's the Lord's response. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk, write the vision as he did. It's in front of you. Not just chapter 1, but through to chapter 2, by the way, where God would go on to pronounce judgment on the Chaldeans, as we read this morning. They would fall in time. The rest of chapter 2, as you read, details that fall. And we have to pause here in light of those historical truths to consider what's going on here and what Paul is referencing. As he would be writing not only in the wake of the Chaldeans falling, but in the wake of this Old Testament text. When this letter was written, Assyria was the one in power, fading, but they were the power, Assyria. Remember, the Chaldeans were those small bit of bandits rising, but they weren't yet a world power. So as Habakkuk cries out to the Lord during Judah's wickedness, consider with me, Yahweh says, Israel will be judged by a power. Oh no, not Assyria, by a power, not yet a power, chapter 1. Yahweh says, in turn, that power, Babylon, will itself fall in time. Chapter 2. Look at the sweep. Babylon would fall in 539 B.C. That is documented. And that's roughly a hundred years after this was given. Amazing. Even further in time than that, though, there's more here. There's more. Yahweh says, look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Yahweh says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amazing. The Lord details prophecy extending to the future coming kingdom. He goes even further than a hundred years. And then he closes with this sovereign declaration. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2, the very last verse of the chapter. But the Lord, where is he? Is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Grab that scene, beloved. Here it is. The Lord sits in sovereign control over the cosmos, over space, over time. And because he does so, thus the implication is be silent. You see that? He reigns over the cosmos, thus be silent. There's nothing to say. Anyone, to sum up this text then Habakkuk, do not live your life by what you see. That kind of life lived then will only be filled with complaint. Do you see that, beloved? When you live life by sight, you will complain every time. Live in light instead, God says through this prophet, live in light of my sovereign oversight. Don't live by your limited finite sight. Live in light of my sovereign oversight and rest in that. 
You cannot possibly know Habakkuk, Israel, Paul, and saints. You cannot possibly know what I'm doing from the heavenly. So God says, be silent. Practically, that means, verse 4, look at it again, live by faith. One righteous like that will live by that kind of faith. That's what his faith is, that he lives by faith, not sight. And that, beloved, is the right response to God always. What a perfect illustration of faith as found in Habakkuk. So Paul goes there. Faith, that is the concluding gospel pillar presented in Romans 1. Faith, as we turn back there now. Faith is what Paul rests this opening introductory theme on. And it's so important to understand the gospel. The peace of the gospel that concerns our response. And make no mistake, faith is granted by God. It's a gift from God. But we are called with that gift to use it and respond in faith. However, we cannot leave faith there. We would not be doing justice to Habakkuk or Paul if we just left it there. Because both Habakkuk and Paul point to something more. This is all over Scripture. The quotation from Habakkuk 2.4 is referenced a total of three times in the New Testament. This is one of those passages referenced a lot. It appears in Galatians, where Paul again uses it as a proof text for salvation. Think of Galatians. It's appropriate. Recall the scandal in Galatia of another gospel, one that promoted law works. So Paul dips in here. Paul says in Galatians 3.11 that it is evident that no one is justified, declared right, before God by the law. For, Habakkuk 2.4, remember, the righteous shall live by faith. That is salvation's entry in view. In Hebrews 10.38, the author references Habakkuk 2.4, same text, this time with sanctification in view. I want you to consider its placement in Hebrews. Listen to this. This is how it comes up at the end of chapter 10. It says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. The author says, going back to Habakkuk, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Very much a progression, a sanctification that's in view. Then the next chapter, by the way, this is the context of Hebrews 10, 38-39, gives you what? The ones that lived by faith, that sojourned by faith. That's what Roman, or Hebrews 11 details. The righteous shall live by faith then, think about Galatians and Hebrews, with regard to salvation and sanctification. Yet I submit to you, Westmount, that while Habakkuk originally, and Paul here in Romans 1.17, certainly had right standing with God and present relationship and progress in view, they had more included in their vision. More was made plain on tablets. The life the righteous live by faith is indeed the one they access by faith. And that life is not just here and now, but this is. And we will see this in Romans If we're paying attention, and of course the New Testament screams this, this is eschatological. This looks to life in the end. Life that begins when you die. The righteous shall live eternally by faith. In other words, as they place their faith and trust in Yahweh, right, in the seed, in the good news of the gospel of God, 
which declares salvation in Christ alone, as the called by God do that, listen, they will live by faith. This is faith accessing eternal life. Taking the gift given and responding with hope. As the called by God, those called, those chosen, the elect of God respond to what's given, they then live not just salvation's entry, salvation's progress, but but salvation's culmination into eternity. There they live by faith. This is salvation to sanctification to glorification. And again, so that we're clear this morning, not just for a better response to life this day, but to be raised to the new life on that day. Beloved, that ultimately is the message and the hope of the gospel of God. Eternal life. And the righteous by faith will live that life forever. And I think we can agree as we close, we are not ashamed of that message, are we? We're not ashamed of that. That is our confession, Westmount. That is indeed our enduring confession. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this truth that the righteous shall live by faith. Father, what a great, great God you are, a God great in goodness and character, a God great in what he does in his acts, and of course, a God great in his love toward us, bestowing upon us this divine achievement in Christ, that we would be declared righteous because of Christ and receive something we don't deserve. Oh, God of righteousness, how good and glorious it is that you call us and grant us faith to have relationship with you now and into eternity. What can we say to so great a salvation? Father, we know this message, and in truth, we are not ashamed of it, yet we are weak and frail. Strengthen us by your omnipotent hand. Make us worthy today of being called ambassadors of your Son. Grant us today, this week, this month, what we need to glorify your name. For we stand together here at Westmount as products by faith of your power, your salvation, and your righteousness. With one voice, we confess your gospel this morning. Amen.